it was her most cherished jewel. I just get sort of um, rather excited by the fact that I'm on the very spot. It's the only one of Fabergé's eggs that looks like an egg. I love this fact they sort of stop for lunch halfway through the rebellion. He actually reaches down into the guy's throat and gets the diamond back. Hello and welcome to History Gems. Today we're going to be talking about a Queen of England who some listeners may be less familiar with, Joan of Navarre, consort of Henry IV. Here to talk to us about this medieval queen is Dr Ellie Woodacre, Senior Lecturer in Early Modern European History at the University of Winchester. Joan of Navarre is probably one of our least known Queens of England, full stop, and, and almost to the point where um, actually Jane Austen uses her as almost a bit of a joke in her um, you know, her, hit, her little pot in history of England about like, uh, you know, don't ask me who the, the wife of Henry IV is. Not only is Ellie an incredible writer who specialises in queenship, but she's also the organiser of the Kings and Queens Conference series and the founder of the Royal Studies Network. She's the editor-in-chief of the Royal Studies Journal and she's also the editor of two book series, Lives of Royal Women and Gender and Power in the Pre-Modern World. Ellie is certainly well qualified to be talking about queens because she was actually my PhD supervisor. She's also currently working on a biography of Joan of Navarre which I am eagerly anticipating, so it's going to be wonderful to talk to her about this lesser-known Queen today. Perhaps you could start by just giving us a bit of background on Joan of Navarre and telling us who she was and what makes her so interesting. Absolutely. You're you're right. Joan of Navarre is probably one of our least known queens of England, full stop. And, and almost to the point where um, actually Jane Austen uses her as almost a bit of a joke in her, um, you know, her, her little potted history of England about like, uh, you know, don't ask me who the, the wife of Henry IV is kind of thing, really? because no one seems to know who she is. So oh she, she's, uh, she's definitely kind of missing in action in our historical record, which is really sad because... She's a fascinating woman who has a, a really long life and a really interesting life. So she comes from Navarre, obviously. Many people aren't very aware of where Navarre is. And if the, the thing I always use, if you're not familiar with Navarre, a lot of people do know the running of the bulls in Pamplona. Yeah. Now, Pamplona is the ancient capital of Navarre. But it was a, a very small country geographically, kind of nestled between what is now kind of France and Spain in the kind of in the Pyrenees. And even though it was small, it was very strategic and very well connected. And Joan is a great example of that. She personally is very well connected. So even though she comes from this little teeny country, she's the first cousin of the King of France. So she's very closely related to the Valois and all the princes of the blood in France. She's related to most of the royal houses in Iberia. Her, through her mother, she's related to the Holy Roman Emperor. And through marriage, she's again, she's got connections literally all over Europe. So it, it's, uh, you know, it's easy to assume that because she's from this little teeny country, it's, it's kind of a backwater and, and she wasn't important, if you like. So yeah. it's, you know, so so yeah, it's, it's her connections, which really make her valuable. And another thing that's really interesting about Joan as a Queen of England is that 
she comes to England. It's her second marriage. So when she marries Henry IV in 1403, she's already been Duchess of Brittany for decades. She's had a family. Um, she survived her first husband, Jean IV, um, and she was regent of Brittany for, uh, at the time that she was negotiating her marriage to Henry IV uh, for her young son, Jean V. So she's already a woman who's, you know, again, she's already been a duchess, a mother, a regent. She's politically savvy and experienced. Um, and again, she's got all these connections as well. So even though, you know, she's coming in a very unusual kind of route to queenship, if you like, but she's mm-hmm. already kind of coming to England with a huge amount of experience. And, and again, these hugely valuable royal connections. Mm. I mean, that's really interesting, because I had no idea that she was so well connected. Um, so she really, she really was one of the kind of um, not necessarily one of the big players, but we're certainly connected to all of the big players in Europe at this time. Absolutely. And that's hugely valuable for Henry IV, because we have to remember that Henry IV is a usurper, effectively. He's the first Lancastrian king. He's unseated his cousin, Richard II. And at the time that he marries Joan, he's still very much establishing himself both domestically and internationally as a legitimate king. Mm -hmm. And so marrying someone who has these kind of undoubtedly royal kind of background um, and again these connections all over Europe enhances his own authority yeah. uh, again by choosing someone unquestionably royal. Yeah it's almost actually like um, like she's the one enhancing his status rather than the other way around which is quite interesting. Yeah yeah absolutely I mean obviously it's a step up for her to go from being duchess to queen but yeah. you're right I think I think they're they're both helping each other in different kinds of ways, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you mentioned that Joan had been a duchess, and it is obviously a huge jump between um, being a duchess and becoming a queen in terms of status. But what about in material terms? So did did Joan, do we know anything about what she may have had in terms of jewels when she was a duchess? And do we know... Um, much about you know any jewels that she may have inherited from her predecessors when she becomes Queen of England? That's a really good question. In terms of her time as Duchess, um, there are inventories of the Duke's um, jewels in Brittany, but I've not yet found one of the Duchess's, which is a little bit frustrating. So it's not mm-hmm. completely clear what she might have had as Duchess and what she might have taken with her mm. when she when she moved across the channel. So that's that's a little bit frustrating for me. I'm still kind of working on that. But to, at this point in time, I've been able to find, like I said, the ducal inventories, but not the ones for the Duchess per se. Mm. Um, but we do know in terms of what she may have inherited, again, we don't have a clear inventory of exactly what she might have come in with. There was a lot of dispute over the jewelry that her immediate predecessor, um, Isabel de Valois, might have had because, of course, um, you know, there was this uh, long running dispute after Richard II was dethroned and then died. What would happen to Isabel de Valois? And of course, that includes all the money and jewels and everything that came yeah. with her. Yeah. So we know a little bit about what, what her predecessor had, but again, that doesn't necessarily equate to what Joan might have inherited. Of course, Jenny Stratford's done some really good work on the um, on the, the jewel collection of Richard II. And, and she does she has traced some of those things 
forward to kind of, you know, the things that did stay in England that we know were kind of um, passed along. So one of those oh, things wow. that, that that we know that she would have had is um, a crown, which Jenny Stratford believes that Anne uh, of Bohemia wore at her own wedding in 1382. And it was given to Joan the day before her wedding in 1403. And, and she most likely wore it again on her wedding as well. And it was a a really stunning crown. I mean, it was worth um, over um, over thirteen hundred pounds in that time, which wow. of course you know makes it hugely expensive. And it had several huge emeralds on it. Um, it had sapphires, rubies, diamonds, pearls. So it would have been a really, really stunning and incredibly royal piece. So I think mm. you know, out of all the pieces that she may or may not um, have inherited, that that one is certainly um, incredibly significant. So just to say that Anne of Bohemia is the first wife of Richard II. Yes, and, yeah, sorry. Um, no, no, it's okay. Um, no, and I was just going to say, have we got any Have we got any images of this beautiful crown? Do we know what it looked like, apart from the description that you've just so wonderfully painted a great picture for us? Do we know? Do we know what it would have looked like other than that? No, sadly not. I mean, obviously, the description of it tells us like the kind of numbers of stones and the kind of stones that was in it, what it was worth. Mm. Um, one of the crowns that I often use as kind of an example um, of, of a kind of similar crown is there is a surviving crown from the period that comes from that same um, treasure trove of Richard II that went with Joan's daughter-in-law, Blanche, um, Henry IV's daughter, who married uh, Louis III of Bavaria. And that crown is absolutely stunning. Mm. And again, it gives us an indication, perhaps, of what, you know, if, if, if it's from the same kind of set of jewels and it was created at a similar time, kind of maybe the style or the feel of that crown. But again, it's, it's, it's very, very difficult to say. There, yeah, it, 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 it is, unfortunately, as so many, as well, I'm sure we'll talk about, as so many jewels are, are re-gifted and, and also kind of uh, broken down and, and recrafted, if you like. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's not one that we have that we know that survives. But we do have Blanche's crown, right? Because that one mm. still survives. It does. It does. And it's, um, again, it's, it's an easy one to Google. If you like, I happen to use it as the avatar of my avatar on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> it's really lovely. Um, and it's still, um, I believe, uh, in Munich, uh, in, the, in the museum there. Um, so it is, uh, again, it, it is a beautiful and excellent example of, of what a royal crown, a queen's crown might have looked like in this period. Absolutely. And we will be posting pictures of that crown as well to go along with this episode so that um, listeners can see for themselves what it looks like. So yeah, that's fascinating. Um, so what about what about Joan's husband, Henry the Fourth? Do we see him giving Joan gifts of jewels at all? Absolutely, absolutely. So the, they start um, with kind of exchanging jewels, or he starts giving her jewels right from the start of the negotiations for their marriage. Now, one of the really interesting things about the negotiation for their marriage is normally when you have a royal marriage, it's a big diplomatic event. You know, the, the kind of negotiations, you get kind of teams of ambassadors or envoys that are exchanged that go back and forth and discuss you know, the treaty or alliance that goes with the, you know, said marriage and um, all the kind of terms and conditions, etc. But Henry IV and Joan negotiated in almost total secrecy. Um, so they began the negotiations. There's some debate exactly where it began, but not long after her first husband died, which has led some people to suggest that perhaps there was a, a personal connection between the two. Okay. So when, yeah, which, when did her first husband die? Sorry. Her first husband died in 1399. Okay. And 
And they may have started kind of corresponding the following year even. And we know that negotiations are very much entrained by 1401. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, so they're, they're definitely, you know, they're, yeah, whether, whether or not it came from, uh, again, a personal, because we know they met um, before, obviously, you know, when she was still the Duchess of Brittany and he, before he became king. Right. So we know that they met. So there may have been a personal connection there. It may have been purely, again, uh, you know, a more uh, political, you know, again, it's been, it's been alleged that she was very ambitious for a crown. And again, we've talked about Henry's possible motivations for wanting um, for wanting Joan in terms of her royal connections. There's been some people who suggested that he wanted to marry her because she was the regent of Brittany and he thought somehow he could gain control over Brittany. Oh. There's been a lot of discussions because it's so unusual, this, this scenario of this kind of secret uh, negotiations. It's kind of I don't know, a lot, a lot of kind of supposition and guesswork about, okay, what's going on here? Why would they be doing that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had no idea. Yeah, yeah, it's a very unusual scenario. But as part of this negotiation, just like any courtship, then we start to see um, gifts being exchanged. And obviously, jewelry and jewels becomes part of that. Um, so one of the uh, so one of the first kind of exchange of gifts that we see at that kind of 1401 kind of point is he sends her um, a pack spread, which is is actually something you use in in, uh, in in kind of worship, if you like, during the mass. So it's actually, it's not something perhaps that you'd wear. It's, some, it's a decorative piece, if you like. But again, okay. it's covered in jewels. It's got four ballast rubies, a huge sapphire on it, pearls. And again, you know, it's, it, you know, it's quite valuable. It's worth about 122 pounds. So again, in that, in that day and age, you would that much significantly more than that. Yeah. And so it was, it was kind of a, a decorative piece, but also, you know, had, it had purpose as well. Yeah. Um, and then again, we start to see personal jewelry being exchanged at that point as well. Okay. So what sort of personal jewelry do we start seeing Henry give to her? Well, we started to see her giving giving rings. And again, rings are often kind of used in, in kind of courtship. That's, I mean, again, even today we think about kind of engagement rings. It's not quite the yeah. same thing, but yeah. obviously they were, they were um, you know, they were a personal item, something that you could wear, reminded you of the giver, that mm. kind of thing. So, um, so no, she, she actually, at the same time that he gives her the pack spread, he gives her two rings. Um, so um, that one of them was worth a uh, hundred pounds with a sapphire and a ruby. So quite an impressive piece. Another one was smaller, a diamond ring worth about 20 pounds, but both that actually belonged to Isabelle de Valois, which is quite interesting. And oh, yes. one of them, actually, that sapphire ring had actually been used when it had been sent originally to Isabelle de Valois at the point in which they had a formal betrothal ceremonial in the Saint-Chapelle in Paris to celebrate her or confirm, if you like, her betrothal to Richard II. So it's quite interesting that this same ring that had a connection with contracting a royal marriage previously is being used to effectively contract another royal marriage again by sending it to Joan. Yeah, exactly. Now, I find that really interesting because, I mean, what can we what can we say about that? The fact that Henry is using a ring that's previously been given to another queen. Is that kind of, is that significant or is that him basically being a bit of a cheapskate and trying to save money um yeah what what can we sort of take from that well it, it's it's interesting because obviously today when we think about like re-gifting like if someone gives you something horrible for Christmas and you kind of re-gift <laughs> yeah. it off to someone yeah. else it's not considered to be such a great thing but actually in this day and era particularly with jewelry 
actually added status to the gift because that link to the previous owner can make a gift more meaningful. It can make it more valuable. So like I said, the significance of having a ring that had been used again to contract another royal marriage yeah. was significant. And and like, as I mentioned before, giving Anne of Bohemia's crown to Joan, mm-hmm. it kind of links her in that kind of, um, the, 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 that continuity, if you like, of queenship, of having something that another queen of England has worn. It kind of makes it more significant. And it's, it's not the only time. I mean, again, you know, it's interesting because about the time that Henry sent those gifts to Joan, he had just kind of gotten full access to kind of um, Richard II's treasure. And and I, I kind of, it, when I was writing this, I kind of had this image of Henry kind of digging around and go, what can I, what can I say? What's interesting in here? What can go? Because that pack spread that I mentioned, again, was also another gift, another kind of item that was in Richard II's treasury that, that was kind of re-gifted. And he doesn't just um, re-gift, I mean, he, he re-gifts, at one point he gives Joan um, a, a, a golden cup and ewer that's encrusted with jewels. And again, that was a really valuable gift that originally had come from her own cousin, Charles VI of France. Now, I think though, giving her something that's connected to her own family also has significance in that way. And Anne of Bohemia actually in, in an, uh, is actually distantly related to Joan through their, their mutual ties to the House of Luxembourg and the, the Holy Roman Empire. So I think there's... You know, and again, Isabel de Valois was also um, Joan's cousin. So I think there's it, it, it's it's keeping things in the family. There's those connections and that are kind of affirmed through passing them from one person to another. If that makes sense, mm. yeah, so, it's a very clever way of giving gifts for sure. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, Henry also kind of recycles things in a different way. So there's another example that he basically breaks down some some brooches that had belonged to Richard II, and he makes a circlet for Joan that's um, basically set with those with the rubies and diamonds that came from the brooches, and that was sent to Joan um, shortly before their proxy marriage. So. He doesn't, you know, he, sometimes he sends the, you know, re-gifts exactly something that he has. And other times he kind of reuses and recycles in a different way. That's quite interesting as well. Um, of that sort of, I don't know, is that quite, is that because we talked about the fact that he is kind of re-gifting a lot of the property of, or a lot of the treasure of Richard II to Joan, Um and so I don't necessarily get the image of him as being someone maybe particularly creative, but I don't know. Can we say, is that is that something that's quite unusual for Henry to have something broken down and kind of recast? Yeah, no, it's not. I mean, it, obviously there's, there's three different ways, obviously you can kind of, um, you know, go about kind of, uh, you know, with Royal Jewels. So you can, you can either, you know, re-gift, like we said, use something you've already had and give it away. You can break it down and rebuild, or you can commission something from scratch. And we see Henry doing all of those things, if that makes sense. So yeah. Jessica Lutkin's done some really good work on um, Henry IV's commissions to goldsmiths and silversmiths during the period. And, you know, from the evidence that she brings together, we can see Henry doing all of those things. So he does definitely recognizes the importance of jewels as a means to project majesty. And he spends quite a bit of money on them in one way or another. But again, he also uses the um, the treasure that he has access to, that royal treasure that he's inherited from Richard II, as a means of, again, you know, uh, re-gifting and, and creating new elements from them as well. Mm. Now, and I really get the impression that Henry's gifts to Joan are all about impressing her. Do you think that's a fair statement? 
I think there's some of that there. Um, obviously, you know, the, the, he he wants to make a good impression on his new bride. Um, I, but I think that I think the more important thing is he's trying to make a good impression on others. So okay. one thing that's really important to consider is that when Joan is wearing jewels, when she is wearing crowns or things that he's given her, um, he is she, she is effectively projecting his majesty. She is mm. she is. Of, uh, I, I don't want to use a, you know use the idea that that a queen's like a Barbie doll that the king kind of dresses up <laughs> and shows other people. So great, yeah, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Clearly, we need a Joan of Navarre Barbie doll. We do, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but but again, by by kind of you know. Uh, it, by making sure that the queen is is suitably impressive and looks suitably royal, and she is like the shop window for the wealth and the majesty um, of the kingdom, so she reflects him. And so, by you know, again, ensuring that she is you know iced or jewel encrusted or however you want to kind of you know kind of phrase that, um, she is again projecting his wealth, his majesty, his authority, his legitimacy again as a king. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's a real kind of. Um a real statement of of you know how he wanted the monarchy to be seen and particularly with um you know the establishment of a new dynasty as well i guess yeah absolutely absolutely so it, it it's really vital for him again to to kind of use every possible opportunity and certainly key moments like um their their wedding and then her coronation which followed swiftly afterwards was a kind of key moment too project that majesty and and also to affirm Joan's position as the new queen as well again making sure that she looked suitably queenly and that she had those pieces that again that belonged to other queens of England like that crown that we were just talking about again you know demonstrates her status and 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 her authority as as the new the new queen consort as well so what do we know if anything about Joan's own preference in terms of jewels is there i don't know is there any particular um, style of jewel that she likes to wear or that she you know has more of or do we know you know if she was particularly fond of pearls or anything like that it's a really difficult one to know in terms of preference um again when we know the, some of the things that she had I and mean, obviously we can see kind of you know, ballast rubies there's a lot of ballast rubies and you know sapphires pearls etc mm-hmm. but again it's it's hard to know more if those were fashionable you know jewels that they had access to or whether that she'd had any choice in the matter. So it's a really difficult one. And because we don't have a lot of record of what she wore on a day-to-day basis, it's difficult to say, oh, she always wore X ring or she used to always have a, you know, she used to often wear a said necklace or circlet or whatever. So it's yeah. really, really hard to know kind of where, what her, how her personal preference kind of fits into this. Yeah. Okay. But do we know anything about how she wore these jewels because I think I'm right in saying that there are no surviving portraits of her so do we have any idea um yeah yeah how she would have dressed with these jewels it's a difficult one in terms of portraits you're right there's no kind of portrait in the kind of painted portrait kind of sense that that survives um or that was probably even done the only images that we have of Joan that are reasonably contemporary is obviously her tomb and there are two manuscript illustrations from the Beauchamp pageant um of the Beecham pageant um manuscripts and that's a little bit later, but there is a drawing of Joan at her coronation and also at the celebrations. So there's a tournament. And again, Beecham is um, fighting on her behalf as her champion. So it's really meant to be about him, but she is pictured. Okay. So 
in both the coronation portrait, if you like, if for want of a better word, or the, the drawing of her at her coronation and um, on her tomb, I mean, she's wearing a crown. So that's that's quite helpful. So we can kind of see that. And again, the crown that she's wearing, um, you know, it may or may not have been the Anne of Bohemia one. Again, we know she wore, she had other crowns. It could have been one of those as well. Um, but again, it, it does show some similarities, if you like, to the one that we were talking about earlier, the, the surviving one uh, that, that Blanche uh, took with her to Bavaria. So it does have that kind of fleuron design, the kind of fleur de lis as well. Um, and, and again, it looks like it was richly encrusted with kind of a band of jewels around around the head as well. Um, so again, it would have been a really impressive piece, the one that she's wearing on her tomb. Now, the one that she's wearing on the coronation um, kind of illustration is a little bit harder to see. And again, um, you know, it's, it's one of those, uh, one of those things, I guess, perhaps if we could kind of, it, it's not fully completed. It's a sketch rather than a fully completed manuscript illustration. So again, if it had been fully completed and colored, et cetera, it might've given us a little bit better um, indication. Again, the tomb um, is polychrome. So we get some idea, but again, you know, it, it's hard to know how accurate it is in terms of are those, the red dots on it would those have really been rubies and that that kind of thing. Yeah. So those are the only kind of visual images that we have of her wearing jewelry. So again, you know, on her tomb, she's wearing the crown, she's wearing the Lancastrian collar, she's wearing um, jewels on her dress as well, including jeweled buttons down her dress. Um, so we can see, you know, we can see some display of jewelry at least there. But that's that's really those those are the few like visual indications we have of how she might have worn crown, uh, her jewels. You mentioned that she had she had more than one crown. Um, mm. Do we know exactly how many crowns she had? And is this usual for a medieval queen to have more than one crown? It's absolutely normal. In fact, um, yeah, we know that medieval queens always had several crowns. Um, in fact, there's there's been some work done by Marguerite Keane and Mariah Proctor Tiffany on the inventories of, um, of actually, um, Marguerite Keane works on the inventory of Joan's aunt, Blanche of Navarre, who was okay. queen of France. And, um, and then also, um, Mariah Proctor, Proctor Tiffany has worked on Clemence of Hungary, who was a, a 14th century uh, French queen. Um, and both of these women, again, had several crowns. And we know that, I, again, in their in their wills, when they kind of stipulated who should have them, um, again, they kind of indicate, oh, my, my second best crown should go to such and such, <laughs> and my crown with this should go to this person. <laughs> so so they, we, we know that they clearly had several, and that was that was quite normal. Now, it's it's difficult to know if they use them for different occasions or, you know, again, if they were kind of associated with particular um, personal preference in terms of what they wore um, mm. again, you know, the Anne of Bohemia crown um, that we, we think she might have worn at her wedding. Maybe that was perhaps more of a, a state crown, you know, crown jewels kind of thing that she wore for, for very kind of important and significant ceremonial. But we know, for example, another crown we know she had um, at the time that Joan left Brittany when she was leaving um, you know, to, to become Queen of England, effectively, her uncle, the powerful Duke of Burgundy, um, came to Brittany to take over the regency from her and also the custody of her sons. And he gave her at that time 
uh, a, a, a golden crown that had 12 fleurons, again, that kind of uh, leaf-like design at the top. Wow. Um, yeah, and it was valued at, at 5,000 EQ. So again, another very valuable crown. So that's that's quite interesting as well, because um, it's quite significant that this comes from her uncle. It, he's kind of acknowledging her transition to become queen. It was actually a marriage that Again, part of the reason why they negotiated it in secret is when her French relatives found out, including her uncle, the Duke of Burgundy, found out there was extreme displeasure, I guess you could (laughs) to put it nicely. And they were not happy about this marriage between um, Joan and the King of England. But the fact that he is giving her this crown acknowledges some level of support, if you like, and acknowledgement that she's making this transition and, and kind of recognition, perhaps that she that this this crown might prove useful to her, if you like, in her uh, her new kind of status and role. That's really interesting. And why were they not happy about the marriage? It's a lot to do with politics. Obviously, one of the real concerns, I mean, one of the real concerns was Brittany. And as I mentioned previously, some people have kind of guessed that maybe what Henry wanted out of the marriage was control of Brittany through her her children and, and because she was regent. So and that's exactly what the French feared. And also the Breton nobles, they didn't they they feared greater kind of English control and interference. And in the later Middle Ages, there had been a great deal of kind of, um, I guess you could say in some ways that, that Brittany was kind of used, uh, was having kind of a tussle, if you like, kind of uh, between France and England as a kind mm. of liminal state in between. So um, again, both of them wanted to control Brittany securely and, and Brittany is trying to stay kind of semi-autonomous and kind of balanced between the two. So it's a it's a very difficult kind of situation, if you like, that, um, that, that, that yeah, again, you know, both France and uh, England want control of Brittany and Joan is kind of the region is kind of piggy in the middle. So yeah, that was their concern that, that through this marriage, England would gain more control in Brittany. And that was something they, the French desperately wanted to avoid. World of medieval politics. <laughs> um, um, and the other thing I just wanted to ask about actually was about um, we talked about, or you talked about the depiction of Joan at her coronation. And I just wanted to ask was she, presumably, she was given her own coronation separate to that of Henry IV? Is that right? Yes, of course, because um, by the time they married, obviously, Henry had been on the throne a couple of years. And um, that was um, obviously, you know, so he'd already had his coronation. So she basically had the wedding at the beginning of February 1403. And then her coronation followed the end of February. So there was, it was a very expensive month. (laughs) (laughs) Basically. And do we know anything about, um, you know, the regalia and the the crown jewels that she would have um, she would have been anointed with all that she would have used at her coronation. No, we don't. And that's one thing that's quite frustrating is that we don't have a lot of description of that particular event, which is frustrating. We do have descriptions of other coronations of English queens, and we have the Libra Regalis, which gives us some kind of indication of kind of how, what the kind of framework for that coronation should have been in terms of ceremonial. But in terms of what she actually wore, um, there's not uh, kind of clear descriptions of that. And again, we only have that one manuscript kind of sketch illustration as well, um, which is um, a bit frustrating. And again, it's not, you know, totally contemporary. So how accurate it is, is difficult to say. Um, So we know more about 
the wedding from that, you know, again, some of the gifts that were given to Joan around the time of the wedding. We know some of the expenditure that was kind of um, laid out for the coronation. And we have a, an example of one of the letters that was kind of sent out, or if you like, a kind of a summons to the great and good, if you like, to attend her coronation. Um, but unfortunately, not a lot of description of exactly what she wore um, on the day in terms of jewels or clothing, And sadly. How frustrating. We've talked about the jewels that Joan was given. Um, do we know anything about about her gift giving habits in terms of jewels? So does she give jewels to anyone? Yes. Um, we do know about some of the jewels that she's given to other people. And obviously jewels, giving gifts in general was a really, really key part of kind of royal and court life. It was a really key part of kind of building and maintaining relationships. And for Joan, we see that this is particularly important with people at a distance. So either people physically at a distance, like her family obviously her family in Navarre. And then when she moved to England, her family back in Brittany, because she had to leave her children behind. So that was a way of kind of keeping a connection with them. Particularly important for her to keep a connection with her eldest son. So Jean V, because not only was he her eldest son, but he was also the Duke of Brittany. So keeping a good relationship with him was important personally and politically. So we see quite a lot of gifts going back and forth to uh, Jean V. Um, so we see, um, again, there's a really good inventory, as I mentioned before, of the of the ducal kind of jewel collection. And so one of the compi- lists that was compiled in the kind of um, between 1414 and 1424 notes a bunch of gifts that were given to him from his mother. So, for example, she gave him um, she gave him a golden tablet, which is uh, kind of a small pendant on it on a chain. She gave him at least two of those. Um, she gave him golden rings. One of them was sent with a diamond. Um, she sent a diamond to him um, when he went to Rouen to meet with Henry V. Um, so she she sends him. Uh, regular kind of gifts. Those are just a couple of examples, but sometimes small gifts, sometimes quite large gifts, like the reliquary um, that she sent him. And that was that was not a, a piece of jewelry, but it was absolutely covered in jewels. It was enameled and covered in jewels, and that's now in the Louvre, um, which is one of the one of the fantastic kind of surviving examples we have of a gift that she gave. Oh wow, that's fantastic! So there is actually something. There is actually a surviving piece out there that we can definitively link to Joan. Yes, yes, exactly. Unfortunately, it's not one of her individual personal pieces of jewels, but it is a jeweled piece (laughs) that she gave. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating. And I feel like there is far more to Joan than meets the eye. And certainly that I've learned an awful lot about her from you today. So thank you so much, Ellie, for giving us a glimpse into the life of this fascinating medieval queen. It's been incredible. Um, when can readers expect to be able to see your fantastic biography of Joan out on the shelves? Oh, thank you. Well, I've been working on Joan for many years. She's become a kind of close companion of mine as I've been kind of researching <laughs> her and studying her. Um, so I will in some ways be kind of sad to be finishing the book. It should be out in 2022. So um, I, I would uh, I will be kind of sad to, to leave Joan behind because she's, again, been a dear companion these last few years. And she's a fascinating woman. And I'm really um, hoping that this book will um, kind of bring her back out of the shadows and, and help more people to realize what a, a 
long and fascinating life that she's lived. Obviously, today we've just been talking about her jewels, but there's so much to talk about in terms of, you know, her kind of complicated personal situation and the political kind of landscape. She's right in the thick of the Hundred Years' War, her accusation of, of witchcraft and the time that she spends kind of under house arrest and all sorts of kind of really interesting things. So I'm really hoping that Joan kind of finds a, a wider audience in the future and she becomes uh, one of our better better known Queens of England rather than one of our uh, least well-known ones. Well, I'm sure that she will when your book comes out. And I think that you've provided us all with a really tantalising glimpse into her life, which I'm sure lots of people will want to read far more about. I certainly do. For those who want to keep tabs on your book and connect with you, where can they find you? Um, you can find me on Twitter. So my uh, my Twitter handle is at monarchyconf, so C-O-N-F. Um, again, I'm also, you can you can email me. Um, uh, my email is ellie.woodacre at winchester.ac.uk. Um, and you can also connect, connect up with me through the Royal Studies Network, um, which I run. And um, again, you can check out the Royal Studies Journal as well, which I edit. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. We will be posting pictures of Joan of Navarre's tomb and the crown of Princess Blanche on our social media pages, which are on Twitter and Instagram at History Gems Pod. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please press subscribe and leave us a rating and review at the end. And do make sure that you tune in for the next episode of History Gems.